Welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for November of 2010. I am writer-critic-lost-horcrux Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi, I'm uh, writer-director-final um, chapter split into two, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today, our special guest villain... ...is alleged film journalist Luke Buckmaster, and uh, fabulous to be here, gentlemen. Thank you for Great coming you. in. Now, what what are the uh, what are the things that you write for that people could look up? Uh, I write for uh, crikey.com.au. Got a blog called Cinetology, and uh, edit the film section of a magazine called Spook Magazine. And you can hear me on uh, MTR Radio every Thursday night reviewing the latest films. So, thank you for coming in. Pleasure. And you can, yeah, check out Luke on all of those aforementioned. King of all media. I think that's his aim. So let's jump into it. The American, the Anton Corbin film with George Clooney. Have we seen that? Sadly, no. I really want to. I'm I'm a huge fan of Corbin's photography and a a big fan of Control and, um, and a huge fan of Clooney, so... And, you know, it's a Jean-Pierre Melville existential style, mm. you know, tale of a hitman near the end of his career. So I'm actually quite pumped for it. But I've not seen it, Luke. Yeah, no, I'm pumped for it too. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, George Clooney. I think uh, of all the actors working in Hollywood that can uh, impersonate a piece of velvet, um, <laughs> he's one of the absolute front runners. But no, I haven't seen it yet. And uh, it sounds like, Lee, you're the only person on the, on the couch who has. And my opinion will therefore be king, as I like it. No. <laughs> uh, look, people have loved and hated this in equal measure, I've found. There's been a lot of debate over it, and I absolutely mm. fell down on the loving it side of the fence. Uh, it's, it's every bit as pretty as Control, Corbin's last film. Uh, it's this really, you know, stoic, meditative, contemplative piece. I took it as a metaphor for US foreign policy. I can't really go into why, because that kind of spoils a mm. lot. Does it have sort of a Graham Greene type feel to it? Yeah. 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 And I guess in terms of being a, a commentary on American foreign policy, is that where the title, you think, comes into it? Absolutely. I thought it was a bit of a sort of overly straightforward title when I first heard it, but it is... But I, th- I think it is very deliberate in how simple it is. It's saying this is yeah. this is not just an American. This is the American. He is representing them overseas. Mm. You've got to see it. I think it's terrific. Right. Cool. Did you see Due Date? I did. Yes, uh, yes, I did see uh, Due Date. And one of the things that, that struck me about that film, I'm surprised more people haven't haven't talked about it, is that I found it to be, if not a, a blatant ripoff, then a homage, if you like, more kindly to the, the John Hughes 1987 classic Planes, Trains and Automobiles. I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'll, I'll stop you there because I'm pretty sure every reviewer has mentioned that. <laughs> well, not, not the ones I've been reading, no? but maybe I'm just reading the bad ones. Um, but I think it's, a, it's, it's blaringly obvious from, mm. from virtually you know the first 15 or 20 minutes. Or from the trailer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's going to be this sort of um, on-the-road, Plane- odd-couple comedy. I'm thinking Planes, Trains and Automobiles for the hangover generation. That would almost be the tagline. I think that's... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think um, Planes, Trains was always pretty sort of straight straight cut. Mm. Didn't really have a, a dope or alcohol in, infused in the story by memory, although John Candy did drink all those tiny sampler size uh, spirits in his hotel room at one stage. But no, it's pretty clean cut comedy. So mm. maybe you're right. And it's no... Um, uh, it's no coincidence, of course, being that the director, you know, Todd Phillips, directed uh, The Hangover, and that was his previous film. Mm. And it's very much, it, it seems to, from what I've seen of Judah, I've not seen the film, but from what I've seen, it's got very same, very similar look and similar kind of level of humour in terms mm. of the, the jokes. But I, whereas I really enjoyed The Hangover, I don't get the sense that you guys really enjoyed this. Or, well, what did you think, Luke? Uh, no, I didn't enjoy it at all. See, I, I, I love the two performers. Um, 
Robert Downey Jr. and Zach uh, Galifianakis. So I really think those two, comedically, they have you know great strengths. And I was I was waiting for that belly up to come that that never arrived. Mm. And while I really kind of like the the characters. I don't think the chemistry really works, and I, and I don't think it's either of the performers' fault. I think it's it's something to do with the way um, Phillips has sort of ordered the, the the script, and I think there was like four or five different writers attached to it. And I don't think the jokes were just very funny, even on paper. Mm. So when you see a car flip five times and they're screaming, and you know you can hear Pink Floyd and stuff on the soundtrack. You know, there's just not much that much to it. It's horrific. It's not done in a funny way. You actually feel the car crash, and you shouldn't in a comedy if it's being played for laughs. You know, but then you could call it a, a car crash comedy. Oh, yes. yeah. oh so I'm thinking, is that a metaphor for the entire film? It's I look, yeah, I, I I think you're absolutely right. I think the jokes just don't work, and but why don't they work? Uh, what's your opinion? Why these jokes don't work? I mean, I I think the characters are quite good. I don't know what you think about the character. I think the characters are quite good. I think the acting is is quite good and the direction's not bad either. I think, look, for me, it, it all comes down to the line they kept using in the trailer and they used as a tagline, which is Zach's character saying, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself. <laughs> and it's just that, oh, it drives me nuts, this sort of semi-ironic pop culture quote that has no context. And it's not funny, it's just a reference. And it's this family guy level of, you know, just unfunny references that, and and there's two. There's not as much of that in the film as I thought there was going to be. Mm. But that's sort of where every joke is pitched. And I think the film's biggest problem is that it's trying to be edgy. It's trying really desperately to be edgy, and so nasty things happen. You know, he spits on the dog. He punches a kid in the stomach. There's all all these things these things going on, and most of the time they fall completely flat. Yeah. And you just think I don't like these people. That's not funny. Yeah, you see, I kind of, I kind of did like the the two main characters, which made it quite frustrating because I just never thought they got their game on. But yeah, yeah we're more or less on exactly the same page. Mm. It's not the worst comedy of the year, but God, it tried. Yeah. It came very close for me, anyway. Yeah. All right, I'm going to jump over to Gasland now, which is uh, it's it's this year's must see doco. Last year, it was I don't know maybe the Cove or or, or fooding, depending on who you ask. Mm. Uh, this year, it's basically about natural gas drilling in the U.S. and it's astonishing. It's mm. uh, a lot of people describing it as depressing, and it sort of is, but it's more just jaw-dropping what's going on. Yeah, very alarming rather than, than depressing. And mm. I, I think the, the story basically began when this, um, this average guy who, who's got a, a property over in America, Josh Fox, got a, a letter from um, mining companies uh, basically saying that in order for them to um, – they wanted to rent or, or sort of mine his land mm. and were prepared to give him for the next – I think it was you know 10 years or so, over $100,000. So he sort of thought, well, you know, could it be this e- this easy? Is it is it that easy? Is this maybe the American dream? So he started making up a few phone calls. He didn't like a lot of his neighbors sign on the dotted line. And then months later, he started to get a bit of a story thing happening. Something funny was was going on in the water, mm. and it's a, almost like a horror movie story concept. There's something funny in the water, and then then tracking how that affects society and more broadly the country was um, pretty shocking. Pretty shocking. Yeah. Often in documentaries, you don't necessarily have the money shot. The money shot tends to be something that you you would associate more with an action film. Yeah. But there's one hell of a money shot in in Gasland. It's made the rounds. I think it's on the trailer. It was even on. 7:30 report, mm. and it's it's where one of one of Josh's neighbours literally lights his water on fire 
and there's this big sort of explosion and fireball that comes out of it and and it's clear at that point that his water has become so contaminated that it's literally flammable yeah, you, and you can't believe what you're watching when it happens. That's it's, right. And and m- after months of these people having, you know, not only drank it but you know, bathed in it and washing it, in it, you know, you just sort of stay away from the water, man. There's something funny in the water. <laughs> Jeez, yeah, that's from what I've seen. That's the compelling, as you say, the money shot, the the thing that just, it's it's that defining statement of the film. It's like whatever they, whatever arguments these moneyed interests can come up with, you just point to that. And yeah, go, that is not right. That's mm. not right. Yeah. Yep. Frightening in a different sense, in a deliberate sense, is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part One. <laughs> <laughs> Film seven in uh, the eight-part series, eight-film series. Mm. What do we think? It's the world's biggest TV series. I feel like I feel like it feels like every few years you come back and it's you know it's the same old characters and it's the same. It's like a new season, and you know every it's all very comfortable and we know where we are. We know who. I've always always had that feeling. It's um, I think this is a pretty strong entry. I, th- I think this is the best one in a while. Um, it's much less convoluted than the last two. David Yates certainly has the style down by this point. He's become the Paul Greengrass of the Harry Potter franchise. You know, this is the this is the house style. But, yeah, uh, this is just so much more um, streamlined and clear-cut and has much more of a focus on the emotional dynamic between the three yeah. the three kids. And, you know, like, this is the emotional shit. They have to reconcile and get out of the way before they can be strong enough to fight Voldemort and take it to him for the yeah. final battle. I really dug it. There are some bits where it, where it draws. It, it's a little drawn out, but I think most of all it, it's really strong. I think it's less convoluted, and I agree with you in in that sense. I think it's less convoluted because it's about less. And I mean, what's this film really about? You know, it's about these these kids that are running away from dark forces that are chasing them, and you've got the emotional um, passageways that occur between the characters that have to be resolved before the game ends, and, and there's this massive kablammy. Um, in another sense, I think it's it sort of strays from a more clean cut narrative structure that the previous films have when they were each based one year um, at a time per school year. And I thought that was a really good, effective way of sort of growing up with the characters. Mm. You don't get that in, in this film for obvious mm. reasons. Yeah, because it's straight after mm. the, um, the previous season. They've it's, graduated it's, and they're yeah. ready to shake those wands and, so and it's cause up some trouble. Year 6.2, almost. I'm a huge fan of this film. I think it's great. I, uh, I, I don't think that putting part one in your title is an excuse to tell half a film. Uh, I like that it's two parts in the sense that we get a lot more, we get a lot of those character moments that otherwise would have been mm. cut out. On the other hand, there's no climax. Mm. And yeah. So it's inherently frustrating viewer experience because it effectively has no ending. Exactly. But and you know, know it's the same this. with Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Rings. No, it's not. They're complete film experiences. I felt satisfied after those. No, because I remember coming out of like when um, Aragorn's like, now let's go kill some orcs. My feeling was. I can't wait for the next one. Bring on the next one. That was pretty much the way I felt at the end of it. But I still felt satisfied. Yeah, exactly. Like, you can still anticipate the next one and and feel satisfied that you just watched a complete film. But Mm. at the end of Harry Potter, I thought, oh, that's over then. I know it's been going for two and a half hours, but I wasn't really expecting it to end there. But here are the credits. And this is a complaint that's going to go away when it's out on DVD Mm. and Blu-ray. Because you're just going to be able to watch the next one. Yeah. So yeah. this is a temporary complaint about the film. Yeah, yeah. but then the complaint will be the, the sheer obesity of the experience. I mean, five hours of it? Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's a pretty heavy investment. You're not going to get that time back. And if you're like me and you weren't 
really at all engaged with this with this movie. It's not an investment that, that you <laughs> buy buy up big in. I thought that despite all the the magical chases and and all those you know, in my opinion, extraneous action scenes, that the the pace of the first hour was actually surprisingly slow. Did you guys get that at all? Yes. Yeah, I think mm. I did. I I, did, I don't mind it because I like living in that world. Sure. Yeah, and yeah. I like the I like them lingering in it. Uh, it's a I, new I, world, really, isn't it? Because they're out of the school and it's yeah, something different. different aspects mm. of the world we're used to. And look, I, I really, really do like this film. Despite my problems with the ending, I really respond to it. All right. Blair Witch meets The Exorcist in The Last Exorcism. That's a very, very good horror mockumentary. But I got to say, it's the perfect... The exorcisms are perfect metaphor for this film because it's a very good film, but there's a great film inside it waiting to get out. Mm. I wanted to see the film that it promised to be, but it was it was very good. Mm. It was very good, so I, I give that credit. Uh, the Loved Ones. Mm, am I not oh. pretty enough? That's, uh. that's the big question. <laughs> hey, they, they made me like that Don't song. Answer that. In yeah, that context. they brilliantly used so. that horrible, horrible song. Yeah, true. Yeah, true. Uh, look, The Loved Ones is Australian horror film. I think it's uh, absolutely brilliant. Uh, I would go so far as to say that if you didn't pay to see this in the cinema or if you didn't see it in the cinema then you don't really have the right to complain that Australia doesn't make good genre films I'm going to put that statement out there yeah I wouldn't say brilliant but I thought it was a very very good genre film it's tense it goes in directions you don't expect mm. it's punchily made I yeah look I think it's a terrific genre effort yeah I, I think the director Sean Byrne sort of over egged the pudding with, with this one I think he had an okay premise and it's it's basically about what can potentially happen when you knock back an invitation to go to the school dance with somebody. And I think the most interesting comment this film makes is that uh, it points out that in some circumstances in life, albeit a very rare circumstances, it is morally justified for a guy to hit a woman. <laughs> Say, for example, after she's drugged him, tied him to a chair, and is about to drill a hole in his forehead. I think at that point it's morally okay. I obviously don't see a lot of substance. I'd say that's movie. fair enough. I think you wouldn't be looking, <laughs> looking at the film for substance. Um, mm. But uh, stylistic, stylistically it didn't really grab me. I like the sort of spooky um but isn't it a disco teen nightmare though like yeah, all other yeah. like that's i mean that's the stuff of great horror films you know like it's your halloween it's well it's a stuff I'm of left horror alone films. on halloween yeah, and there's a stuff of horror films I, yeah. I don't know about great horror films and i think when i say he overreacted the pudding there's zombies in the basement you know more well, in zombies. a sense yeah. yeah you know and it's I don't, I don't mind. I mean, they're, I kind of like that. Touches. that. That was, yeah, that was one of the things. But, I didn't but why? What's that doing there? I mean, it's a he, collection. He it's goes to such lengths to try and establish some sort of realism, mm. and then it just sort of what flies out the window or downstairs in the basement. <laughs> <laughs> what do we think of the plot line, the concurrent plot line, the lighter one with the with the with the friend and the? There are a lot of girl. reasonable arguments against it, but I really liked it because it's sort of. It sort of plays into the effect, the knock-on effect that all this actual horror has on people's lives. And it's kind of a nice juxtaposition to people who don't, you know, these other people who don't really fit in. Mm. And it's just this... But it's disconnected, know. isn't it, from the story? I mean, it feels really disconnected. But there's a point at the end when it dovetails. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. But you're, you're waiting for that point. And mm. I think why it's sort of interesting in a storytelling sense is that you're, you're wondering what the correlation is. Mm. Yeah. And for 99% of it, there, there just isn't any. No. So, gentlemen, Machete. I did not see Machete. Oh, loved it. You are missing out, friend. You yes. are. Spectacular film. Absolutely. 
Yeah. So much fun. All right. I'm going to let you take the lead on this Yeah, well, yeah, I'm happy to sort of share it with you, but I don't know where to start. Such a great cast. Um, Danny Trejo and and um, this Jessica Alba and and, and uh, Michelle Rodriguez and Robert De- uh, Robert uh, De-, uh, De Niro, Steven Seagal. It's kind of hard to order them in my mind because there's so many supporting mm. characters for Tom for Savini. Part. There's yeah. a lot of um, Cheech Marin. Like, there's a lot of um, uh, Robert Rodriguez's kind of you know house of <laughs> you know the, yeah. the Rodriguez factory, if you will. Um, it's such a. I think it's such an effective updating of the black exploitation movie of the seventies to a mech exploitation movie, for want of a better term, of the two thousands. I think it's. I think it takes all those black exploitation tropes of you know the 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 commonly at the time sort of lower you know someone who's been marginalised or regarded as lower class who actually has you know skills that others underestimate who is you know set up and put in a situation by, you know, essentially by Whitey, yeah, you know, yeah. um, to do something. And, you know, and this guy is not necessarily the best-looking guy in the world, but he cops off with every sexy woman that comes within mm. his path, you know. All the villains are ridiculously violent, uh, um, racist. You yeah, know, Robert, Robert like, De Niro's character, who's a senator, and he's trying to get voted on a platform entirely consisting of a strong stance on border control immigration. Mm. And, you know, play, people holding placards like uh, Uncle Sam pointing and, you know, we want you to speak English. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's that sort of thing that in black exploitation as well, you, you had those kind of ridiculously racist kind of villains. So I think, and in terms of the, the visual styles, well, it does, thankfully, it does adopt the grindhouse um, look for. Um, much of its running time, mm. with, you know, scratches on the screen and the occasional pop and things like that, and um, which I was happy about because I thought they'd lost that. But yeah, I, and I think I think Rodriguez has passionate points to make. Like again, he's making them in a sledge, sledgehammer fashion, but that's the black exploitation films of the seventies made it in a sledgehammer. Absolutely, fashion. so it does work as a social commentary, despite mm. all the blood and severed limbs. And um, all those action scenes that, to me, resembled some of the early work of Peter Jackson, mm. and 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 the special effects are more closer to like CGI. Uh, sorry, to Play-Doh than <laughs> than CGI. You know, a character grabs someone else's lower intestine and and falls out a window with it still clutching on for dear life. <laughs> so many great gratuitous <laughs> scenes, but it's wrapped around this sort of social commentary, and it's told under the banner of bad filmmaking. Mm. But it's actually, in my opinion, really good fi- filmmaking. Yep. I love it when filmmakers are able to do that. Mm. Yeah, it's the thing. It's it's that it's a, it's a throwback to you know gritty, hardcore, punchy action. You know, it's not it's not overly stylized. It's not this music video bullshit that we've come so used to. You know, it's 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 old school. Now I'm going to jump into monsters here. I'm just going to quickly say monsters, absolutely stunning film. Uh, I I think it nails character. I think it nails the the metaphors for you know war and Hurricane Katrina and immigration. I think it's one of the better alien invasion movies we've seen and it's everything that Cloverfield wanted to be. Paul, I can only assume that you agree with me 100%. Uh, I do not agree with you 100%. What? <laughs> uh, I was trying to think of a smart retort there and I couldn't. Uh, yeah, look, this film is incredibly disappointing for me. Um, I, other than the the essential, the magic trick of how they did this for half a million dollars mm. is the most impressive thing about the film. Yeah. Um, like, frequently, I my jaw drop thinking, how the hell, like, these sets and these locations and these places, like, this is an amazing setup and the visual effects. Um, beyond that, I thought, 
if you if you are going like he had the right idea if you're going to make make a statement with an ultra low budget film and set it against a big backdrop of a big sci-fi or action backdrop then if you're going to make a character study you need to make an interesting character study with characters that feel fresh and interesting the characters were neither fresh nor interesting. They were cliched. They were trite. It's the kind of... Sort of slept walk through the running time, I think, too, didn't they? Yeah, it was incredibly dull. See, all the things you wanted the characters to be is what they were to me. Wow. I found them fresh and interesting. Really? Yes. They... See, I didn't get... like. It's like, oh, of course. And like their introductions were uninteresting. It's like... And even down to the point, it's like she's an heiress. It's like, oh, you know, it's like, oh, what is this? Yeah. happened one night. But but it's like... That's the thing. It's like... But that's the thing. It's like... It's those kind of movies. It's like it happened one night and the African queen meet district nine but without the wit of the former or the tension of the latter and it's like the 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 the, the aliens are barely like they 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 don't ratchet up the tension very much at all no with the, the, aliens. Sort of the, the dressing on on top of this this salad which is about essentially you know it's pretty much a, a romantic film between these two mm. sort of stale sleepwalking characters <laughs> um and i think for me monsters was like a a sci-fi movie for people who don't like sci-fi movies or an art house movie oh. for people who don't want to see an art house movie. Yeah. That's really oh, interesting. I, no, no, I, now I now you're it. reviewing the audience. Come I, on. <laughs> I won't stop at the audience. That's fine. <laughs> I'll, I'll start reviewing the, the guy at the candy bar, whatever's necessary. Um, but, I mean, I get it on a conceptual level and I'm impressed that they're able to mm. pull it off. It, it feels like a big movie. And it was done off the, the smell of an oily rag. And, and to be honest, cool. I feel kind of bad for knocking the guy because it's like he did this amazing, you know, he, he did everything on this, ama- you know, like he, it's an amazing effort to get this done. It and, is. It and is. I admire his ambition. And like as a low budget filmmaker myself, I feel really bad knocking him. But what's but, your story, man? Like yeah. what's the story? What are you trying to tell? I didn't, he I didn't, needs a writer. I didn't get that. I got I got a story out of it. I don't. I honestly think there are two different prints of the film, and we saw different. Uh, I think I think <laughs> any five minutes of District Nine makes more political and social social comment than oh, ninety minutes agree. of this film. And, and, wow, and yeah. I found the the most interesting thing about monsters is that the special effects are crap. Right? They look like these flimsy pieces of calamari that sort of dance around, and you see them in um, in fuzzy television screens. But you buy them. And and they're quite plausible. Mm. And you ask yourself, well, why are these crap special effects plausible? It's the context. And because it's dramatically plausible, and although I don't think it's a particularly interesting film, it's dramatically plausible and credible, and the characters are credible in a lot of ways. So you then you, you change the context, and suddenly the special effects, which would be crap otherwise, are actually you know quite good. So in terms of sci-fi imagery, the devil is, is just not in the detail. It's in the context. I think Ed, Gareth Edwards is a director to watch. I sincerely think he should hire a screenwriter next time. Directors to watch. Patrick Hughes, Australian, who just made the Aussie Western revenge Red Hill. Yeah. Now that I can get on board yeah, with. Yeah, me too. Oh, good. Okay, well, in that case, we're all in agreement because, God, I love this film. This is a <laughs> kick-ass movie. I mean, people talk about the future of Australian films and which direction we should take it and genre filmmaking. The, the, you know, genre is often a dirty word. Mm. And art house movies are a kind of genre as well, um, so it's sort of like a, a, a kind of like a contradiction. Being a bit hypocritical, saying, "Well, we want you to make these kind of movies, but we don't want you to make these kind of movies." And I think Red Hill is a really good example of a genre that that doesn't get a lot of space in Australian cinema, uh, and that's got something new. There's something fresh about it. I think the Aboriginal revenge element is quite exciting, mm. and I think the character really, in a sense, kind of represents a, a dark justice or a fight and a, and a sense of revenge that must be simmering deep down in the guts of some Aboriginal mm. people, the fight that they were never really 
able to have against the white man. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, good take. That's, on yeah, it. that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. I I love the thing I love the most about it as a film buff was the fact that it it could have been written in a, like at that the whole script could have been written as an American script, like even down to the names of the characters, mm. and they've and they've just been but. You can just pick that up and drape it on an Australian um, sure. thing and not change a thing. Just but change. it feels Australian. Exactly. Yeah. So but that's what, that's what I'm getting to. It's really conducive like, to this story. And really yeah. conducive to Westerns. Mm. You yeah, know, like absolutely. we, Australia as a culture, like we do have a harsh desert plain, you know, being the outback. We do have, you know, hard-bitten characters living on you know, on the fringes. You Steve Bisleys. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and, and and that's the thing. It's like, and, and you just change Native American rage and Native American revenge to indigenous. And it's like, it's it's that whole thing. It's like, you know, you're setting up the Indian in, in, in um, the Native American slash in, Indian in uh, Westerns was always the bad guy. And now we've got this sort of revisionist thing mm. where he you know, starts off as the bad guy, but he's actually the good guy. Mm, in know, a way. He's actually yeah. getting that righteous revenge and we can't blame him. Because they've destroyed his family. It's the, I think Ryan Quentin's terrific. I, I, I think he's got real, real leading man potential. I love him in True Blood. And mm. this, is, this is a completely different side to him. And um, he's got an affability that's just... He seems... He's very naturally likable. Which is good good quality for a pretty boy to have. <laughs> yeah, look, it's a superb film. I agree. And uh, yeah, it's, it's one of the best training films of the year. Hell, one of the best films of the year. I'm going to go out and say that. Mm. All right, I'm just going to launch into uh, two very different films that both begin with W, Wild Target, uh, which is astonishingly unfunny. It's a remake of a French film, and uh, nothing funny happens in it, which is disappointing because it's a comedy. Not even with Bill Nye? I love Bill Nye. And Martin Freeman? And I love Martin Freeman. I love the entire cast. It's got great people in it. Rupert Grint? So basically, Wild Target, exceptionally unfunny. Avoid it. The other W film is Winter's Bone which is a really, really beautiful, understated film. But it's absolutely beautifully shot. Is that, that it's right? It's stunning. It's yeah. absolutely stunning. And it's got the terrific John Hawkes going for it too, who's That's right, yeah. everything. Yeah, it took me a while to pick him. And, and the ending is, uh, is really superb. So is it a crime story or is it a slice of life movie? Like what? Sort of. I recently read True Grit, the mm. novel, uh, and it, it basically feels like that. Mm. Just a, a, mo- a modern version of that, which will be interesting to see it against the Coen Brothers one. Mm. Um, but yeah, definitely worth seeing. But uh, my pick of the month is Lebanon. The, uh, the film set entirely inside an Israeli tank in Lebanon, which is just... that That's like in my top ten for the year. I think oh. it's such an amazing wow. film. During the uh, Lebanon War of 1982. Of course, sorry. Yep. Um, yeah, we saw this during Myth. Yeah, a few months ago. I- I wasn't quite as blown away as you, but I did. I it is a fantastic film. I will mm. say, like it is, um, like there were one or two sort of small narrative grievances, but nothing major. Like I mean, it's mo- it mostly succeeds as as a as a humanist war film and as a masterclass intention. Mm. It's um so incredibly um edge of your seat. Uh, that's that's spot on. You know, it is it is really really tense, and I think it's got a lot to say. Mm. Like it's got some some really complex things to say about the nature of war and the nature of civilians and soldiers in war, and it doesn't judge anyone. It doesn't make anyone look saintly or or mm. devilish. You know, everyone is human. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, you got to see that. Go see that one. Certainly will. Now, Mr. Buckmaster, would you like to tell us who you have selected as your... I'm going to throw to Paul to do his thing. Your hell is for hyphenates filmmaker of the month. 
Tony Scott. Mr. Tony Scott. <gasps> nice. Mr. Tony Scott. Nice. Yes, yes. He's got a, a film called Unstoppable coming out in January. So I thought it, uh, the timing is would be quite quite adequate. Quite Was there any other reason beyond that, or do you want to go into? Oh no, no, absolutely not. No, no, no. <laughs> there, there is, there is. Uh, of course, there's other reasons. Um, and you, you gentlemen were, were kind enough to ask me to select my favourite auteur or a a good auteur, auteur to speak about. And I didn't actually choose my favourite auteur. I think it'd be very bold for a film reviewer to say Tony Scott's your absolute favourite. <laughs> it'd be ballsy. It would. It'd be very ballsy. Someone but, would run you out of town. You know, I think the tendency is um, when you're given that sort of choice is often to to bring, uh, you know, uh, an undisputed great filmmaker to the table, so to speak, and, and arrive with um, Alfred Hitchcock and we, we talk about how, how great he is. Whereas with the discussion is a little bit more wide with Tony Scott. It's not just, you know... Um, how good the film is but is it any good mm. and there's a lot to talk about some of his films are deceptively complex and some of them are, are fairly simplistic and most of them are, are pretty exciting I found it interesting that you, you were saying before to us before we started recording that you haven't actually seen The Hunger his first film that's right yeah I haven't well I just watched this the other day and it's it's crazy. I kind of there's a part of me that likes it. You know, I want to give it props for being one of those flat out '80s weird things. It's like part video clip, part you know, just mm. surreal horror, sexy thing. I don't think it works. Like, I don't think it's a particularly good film, but I like that it's it's its own thing. Yeah, I came to it as a um, I saw it a long time ago and kind of fell asleep, and I watched it, <laughs> I revisited it recently and had exactly the same reaction. Okay. As much as I want to like it, as much as the cast are fantastic, I mean, Catherine mm. Deneuve, Susan Sarandon, and David Bowie, you can't go past those three. Oh, wow, David Bowie's in it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, it, it, it does have Tony Scott's visual style from day one. He arrives like like the the shafts of white light, and everything yeah. looks you know like it's 110 degrees, and <laughs> you know, and all, all that sort of thing, and you know, classical music often playing, and mm. it's it he, he does arrive surprisingly fully formed, but it is the work. It feels to me like it's the work of a of a commercials director, a commercial slash music video director yeah. who has no idea how to tell a story as a feature film. That's a theme I feel we'll be returning to, uh, or I'll be returning to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, smell it. But then, of course, we feel the need for speed. <laughs> we do. Top Gun, let's do it. Well, he was on the scrap heap for a few years, no one would hire him after The Hunger, and then Simpson Bruckheimer, who were impressed with his music video work and his commercial work, decided to give him another chance, and they wanted a, uh, a you know, at the time, they, they were big on hiring, seemingly hiring British music video and commercial directors that they could kind of order around to make their film. But Scott was the one they seemed to really connect with and he came and brought his own style to it. I think Top Gun is a magnificently calculated film. I think it's brilliantly built towards its target audience. I think it knows exactly what audience it wants to hit. Mm. And it wants to hit many. And it does. It has things that appeal to men, women, kids. I think it's a popcorn flick par excellence. We'll go into some other facets of the <laughs> film, but but I, I think as as a popcorn flick, I think it's supremely well calculated. Yeah, I think it's well well calculated. I think it has its limitations. Uh, I think once you once you go in there with Tarantino's spiel in mind about how this is all about one man's struggle to um, come to terms with his own homosexuality. <laughs> It's just it colours the the entire experience in a different hue, it really and, does. It, and it seems to just drip out of every frame. This this repressed homoerotic tension between the characters they almost seem to be winking at each other. You know, it's yeah. it's mm. quite incredible and, and a great reading of the film. I think. I look, I loved this film 
Uh, but it is complete dog shit, I think. Uh, I really, think, <laughs> really? I think it's a terrible <laughs> film. But I do love it because it is so ridiculous. Like, as it's flag-waving nonsense. Absolutely. And, and I think it sums up... But that's where America were at at that point. Well, yeah, you it know, sums Rambo up the worst of the, the 80s. It's Reaganism at its, yeah. uh, its peak. But it's fun. And, and uh, you know, the 80s was all about excess yeah. and yeah. collateral damage at the expense of I just of think excess. there's no way you can't not... in like. Unless you get all uppity and political about it and take it completely seriously, there is no way you can't enjoy this film. It's 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 complete. It is a p- complete popcorn movie. Talking yeah. about that film, the context of, of where America was at, it was it was made in in what eighty six eighty six yeah right. So that was nine years after the end of Vietnam, about four years before the start of the Gulf War. So there really was no war, you know, no big war anyway, for these guys to be serving their country. And so, mm. but there was the ever present threat of the Cold War. Oh, that's that's true, but. Having all these planes, you know, flying around in this Top Gun Academy, it was almost like uh, they were a solution searching for a problem. And yeah. they find one in the end, in this kind of crazy international incident at the end, mm. where their skills are, are put to the test. But it's interesting just putting in that sort of police academy setting. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Now, I haven't actually seen his next three films, so I'm going to be listening to you guys talk about it. Uh, Beverly Hills Cop 2. You haven't seen Beverly Hills Cop 2? I'm not a huge Eddie Murphy fan. Have you seen Beverly Hills Cop 3? No. Good, because that'd be weird. Okay. Have you seen Beverly Hills Cop? Uh, funnily enough, no. Oh, okay. Man, First one's do worth seeing. Mm, okay. I think this Beverly Hills Cop 2 again was here, Simpson and Bruckheimer hiring their their boy that delivered them the riches with Top Gun. And uh, yeah. it's a stinker. It's pretty Really? Bad. Oh, how dare you? Yeah. Come on. Uh, Beverly uh, Hills Cop 2. It's this, almost this a classic. devoid of laughs. laughs. It's the, the best. Devoid of laughs. No ways. <laughs> It's got Absolutely. the Johnny Wishbone. The, the Gilbert Gottfried is about the only funny thing about the, the, the alphabet murders. Um, it's, it, it gives Eddie Murphy tons and tons of lines to go on his, I think, quite hilarious rants and impersonations. And he, you know, he, he rocks up in, in, in Beverly Hills and he talks him into believing that he's building inspectors and all that sort of stuff. You know, feeds into but the first two movies before they kind of stuffed it up with the third. But no, I think this movie's hilarious. Oh no, I just and think it, it's incredibly crass. Although you're the Tony Scott expert, Paul. Mm. Um, was this the only comedy that Tony Scott's directed? Yeah. I- intentional yeah. comedy? Can <laughs> I underline intentional? Because I have some good points point. to make later on. Oh, dear. But what, um, about, what about Revenge? The, was that the Kevin Costner? Yeah, Kevin Costner, Madeline Stone, Anthony Quinn. And, uh, yeah. That. You could not green light that cast today. You really could you? couldn't, no. Well, Anthony Quinn's dead. Um, well, that was partly why, <laughs> I think. It's, uh, yeah, it's uh, Kevin Costner and Anthony Quinn are old Navy buddies, I think, and... And then um, the, um, they meet up years later and uh, Anthony Quinn is married to a beautiful trophy wife, Madeline Stowe. Her and Costner fall into a bit of sexual passion and then <laughs> Anthony Quinn finds, finds out and takes action against Stowe. And it's got to be a pit of sexual uh, mm. passion with, with Kevin It's Costner. very steamy <laughs> and... if See, this is the thing. There's, there's a word I, I think applies to Tony Scott's aesthetic and some people would use it as a pejorative but I think in Scott's case it's a positive. Because I think it is absolutely the right visual style for action. That word is overheated. Mm. Everything about Tony Scott's films look overheated. Mm. It's it like it never looks cold in a Tony Scott film. It's always every you can almost see steam rising off everybody's foreheads. You know, everybody's you know out out for action or out to get somebody or out to you know, and it's like. It's, it's humans pitted against one another. And everything about his style, I think, could be described as overheated. 
Revenge is a very overheated film. I saw it about 15 years ago. Um, I, yeah, I wasn't that impressed with it, then, with it then. I'd be eager to see it now, but I don't believe it's actually on DVD. Very hard to find on DVD. And, you know, I haven't checked, but the BitTorrent sites probably don't stock it either. Mm-hmm. I'm so not familiar with those things. <laughs> well, I've heard they don't stock it. Now, I'm, taking a, I'm taking an educated guess. Now, my impressions are that Days of Thunder is Top Gun with cars. Am I correct? Yes and no. Uh, if it's if it's if it's possible, it's possibly cornier than Top Gun. Yeah, um, yeah I I don't think. See, it's the thing. This is why I'm. I don't think this is as well calibrated a film as Top Gun. Is. No, no, not nearly. Yeah, and it's as a form of entertainment. I think it wanders. I think it invests too much in a dull love affair. Yeah, absolutely. The NASCAR scenes are incredibly well directed, and this is where Scott shines. Of all the complaints you can level at Tony Scott, I don't think you, you can say you can't direct a chase scene. Mm. I think you can direct a, quite good chase scenes. You get your, your rental car chase scenes, your wheel, wheelchair race scenes. <laughs> he has enough goes in the film, doesn't uh, he? <laughs> car chase scenes as well. But Now, I just watched The Last Boy Scout for the first time recently. Mm. I am no longer scared of a future in which computers write scripts because I have seen The Last Boy Scout, which feels like the most automated thing where every stock joke is used. Action! It is, <laughs> it is almost a contender for one of the worst films I've ever seen in my life. You're a crazy person. It is so bad. It's I, Shane Black's Dark View of the World. It's neo-noir. It's an LA. I'm not on board. I love Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, Bruce but I'm not on board with Shane yeah. Black. Gruff detective. I mean, that's when Joe Helen Beck really is really getting into that, that cut of character. It's the one decent. It so well. It's the one decent Damon Wayans performance. Yeah. There's a, there's a line in it where I think, well, I think Bruce Willis says, who gives a fuck? You're the bad guy, right? And that just summed up the entire film for me. No one took any of it seriously. The jokes are bad. The action's bad. But it's, I just, me- like, bl- it's meta itself. Like all of it does. All of uh, Shane Black stuff is self-referential neo-noir. I, I could not believe what I was watching with this film. One of the worst films. This is your yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, my jaw is on the floor. Yeah, I mean, yeah, but I, I thought I'd shock you with that. Um, but I didn't realize I'd shock you that much with it. But yeah, I was. Uh, it's kind of regarded as like a little bit of an action classic of the nineties. Well, yeah, that's Paul's jaw literally fell. Like it's, you could put a tennis. We've ball glued it hands. back on. And I, and I I I love I love how hard. Like this is a movie. It's funny. Beverly Hills Cop Two. I don't think the crassness suits. But Last Boy Scout. I think it fits. Because I think it's a place where everybody's rotten to the core, and and you know, where thirteen-year-old girls swear at their fathers, and you know, and um, characters regularly make sexual slurs about each other, and all that and lovely stuff. Yeah, I'm going to come around a bit, a bit more on true romance. I think it's, I think How it's could a, you not. Well, it's uh, it's well, a QT it? script. It's not not one of his best, but it's good. And Tony Scott's direction works. Usually, I find his direction really gets on my nerves, but he really knew how to direct. Why does that it film. get on your nerves? Is it the restlessness? Is it the the pulsating feel to it? Is it the I overheatedness? Think, does it become uncomfortable? No, no, I don't mind. I don't mind that. It's more the and this is something he develops later. And I was watching them all out of order, um, so I didn't come to True Romance chronologically, but. His directorial style is, is very much... Uh, it's, it's become more and more about reminding you that you're watching a film and it's become this sort of music video aesthetic. Whereas True Romance, he knew, you know, when to make it crazy and when to make it... when to keep the camera still mm-hmm. and let the actors get on with it. I mean, it's a completely superfluous scene, but the scene between Christopher Walken and Dennis Hopper is 
astonishing. And this is Tony Scott leaving the camera alone, letting the actors get on with it. Mm. And I was really impressed with the direction of this film. Yeah, I think looking back, virtually every director in Hollywood would have loved to get a Tarantino script. So Scott really sort of stumbled upon the the elixir of of gold, uh, cinematic gold nectar. (laughs) <laughs> some other better superior way to describe yeah. it but uh, I love the, the grungy feel to, to True Romance it's got this sort of dope tainted atmosphere that as I said before it doesn't actually feel that much like, like Tony Scott mm. well um, his next film Crimson Tide I'm going to come out and say for my money this is his best film I remembered it being good and I rewatched it the other day and I just thought it was uh, it was a really great script. It was really well directed. It's the most I've ever liked Denzel Washington. Yeah, me too. Me uh, too. You yeah. know, Gene Hackman is perfectly cast in it. It's just a great it's a kick-ass film, film start that, to finish. To film. me, those are his twin towers. Mm. Um, that romance, Crimson Tide, back to back. Yeah. Like those are his two best films by far. Yeah, it's and right up there. Has and can be, I ask how many be. times do you think Michael Bay watched Crimson Tide? Because it is the template for the Michael Bay style. I think everything. We'll get to this later. There's, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I think, there's, not, there's no explosions in it. I think no. everything... from Michael Bay style needs explosions. Yeah, well, I think Tony Scott's entire career... I, th- I think Michael Bay has taken everything he's learned from Tony Scott and a little bit from John Woo and then turned it up to 15 yeah. to the point where the speakers And explode. stuffed it up <laughs> and over-egged the pudding. Yeah. <laughs> and very it. fond of that. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, it, apply, it applies to Do both Do you want films. some pudding, Luke? <laughs> <laughs> I, I have got a hungry for pudding. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's a, it's a great submarine movie. I'm not traditionally a fan of the genre, if you could call it such. I mean, it tends to be, um, you know, dominated by narrow corridors and flashing buttons and sweaty men and you know, people peering into different screens. It's hard to get that tension, and yeah. I think he does it so well. And the the characters work on a couple of different levels, but the philosophy between the gung-ho, you know, happy to, to, to shoot the, the bomb sort of war general and the play by Gene Hackman and the sort of more, more moralistic by-the-book character played by Denzel Washington produces some pretty pretty effective chemistry between them. Mm. Absolutely, yeah, and both of those actors are on fire in this film. It's like they're and they're all treating the material really seriously. Like it's played, you know what I yeah. mean? It's played completely straight face. There's no winking here. It's and the film does uh, voice those conflicts quite eloquently at times. Yeah, um, it's a great script. Yeah, mm. and the thing is, the script is um, it's actually one of those Hollywood potpourri's of many screenwriters yeah. that actually works. Yeah, because the the great scene where they're talking about the philosophy of war across the table was written by Robert Town. There was various bits of Tarantino dialogue in there. It wouldn't be the comic book moments by any chance. No, no, no. Uh, but one bit in particular that's very Tarantino is the whole uh, conversation about the Lapanza horses. Yes, who are superior because they're white, and then Denzel drops. They were born black. Mm. It's it's such a Tarantino conversation. I did not pick up on that metaphor until you just said that, and now I'm feeling pretty stupid. Yeah, didn't even occur to me at the time. Love. I don't see color. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love this movie. Absolutely. So yeah, look, I'm I'm just gonna stake that as my uh, Crimson Tide. Like I'm gonna say some things about Tony Scott later on. I just want you to remember, I do love one of his movies. Genuinely love. (laughs) One of his oh films. Boy. Now, I haven't seen The Fan. I haven't seen this film for quite a few years. Um, the mm. resident expert, Paul, um, Sort of a few times. It's a huge disappointment when compared to Romance and Tide. Like, it was it was a huge step backwards. Um, look, it's, again, it, it's, a, it's a fun, overheated psycho thriller in the Tony Scott kind of style. Um, and it was the time when this was sort of novel for De Niro to kind of, you know, 
being a popcorn uh, a popcorn yeah. thriller where he's kind of playing a nutso obsessed with knives. I and remember he, him to be pretty creepy. Yeah, very creepy. Yeah. And a little sad too. Like, you know, his life had abandoned him and he kind of just threw himself into this baseball team. And But yeah, look, I, I, I enjoy it on a, on a visceral level. In fact, I enjoy most of Tony Scott's films on a visceral level. But yeah, but as but as a story, it was fairly underwhelming. A bit of Cape Fear to it, isn't it? Yeah, a little yeah. bit. Yeah, it's not not one of his great efforts. But but if you're a fan, there's enough. No, pun, hey. pun, you're um yeah, you, you'll find stuff to enjoy. And then from there, we go into uh, he goes back into the Bruckheimer. F- Bold for Enemy of the State. Action yeah. of Plenty. I saw that years ago and I remember not being overly impressed. I thought it was all right, but it didn't really get me. This is this is one of my favourite Tony Scott movies. It's it's right up there. And it was made in, in 1998, three years before September 11. And before that, that big debate about national security versus personal liberty really came out in America. It was building and simmering and the internet brought it on and mm. people were starting to talk about it. But this was a prophetic film, I think, in a, in a, in a few ways. And it's got a terrific scene right at the start where one of the senators is, is assassinated. And um, John Voigt says, his character says, the only privacy that's left is inside your head, but that's enough. And it spends a hell of a lot of time establishing, or quite a lot of time establishing, the, the, the technology that Big Brother uses to watch you. It's watching you, but it's watching you from space, mm-hmm. right? And it's watching you via all these different little cameras that are putting your shoes, putting your, um, putting your phone, put on your button. There's this quite a really hilarious scene where John Voight in an, ele- uh, sorry, uh, Gene Hackman in an elevator, and Gene Hackman plays this sort of straight-talking, paranoid expert. Um, who sort of gave up his role in society to become this sort of hermit uh, many, many years ago. And, and he runs into Will Smith in an elevator and just makes him strip down to his underwear. And before you know it, Will Smith's sort of dangling out of a window in a high-rise apartment building. And, and it's just got this... It's, an, it's a real on-the-run um, thriller. But there are so many concepts about um, privacy and a violation of privacy and things like that. They're all working and, and competing with each other at the, at the same time. I, I really like this movie. I, I like it a lot. So Spy Game. Yeah, I saw this um, theatrically when it was released in the cinemas. And I think, by memory, this and Domino are the two films that Tony Scott really relies on of the flashback device for. Mm. And it's staged in, in quite, a, quite a classy way. Mm. Um, I think Robert Redford kind of brings an element of class to it as well. Yeah, I think I really liked... Like, I know it's, it's, it's sort of rare to, I guess, look at an interpersonal relationship in a Tony Scott film, but I really liked the relationship between Robert Redford and Brad Pitt in this film. Mm. I actually found it kind of touching. And a really like a real father son type dynamic. I I actually I I thought this film is probably one of the Tony Scott films that works. One of the few Tony Scott films that works more on an emotional level than a visceral level. Yeah, and it's tied together um, pretty neatly too. It's got quite a clean structure to it. Mm. I don't think it's an extraordinary film in any way, no. but I just think it's yeah. I just think it's solid work, and it and it, the one way it is extraordinary is that fact that yeah, it works more emotionally than viscerally for Scott, which it makes it a bit alien in his mm. filmography. So it's more powerful in emotional sense than, say, the relationship between Val Kilmer and uh, Tom Cruise yes. in Top Gun. Absolutely. I don't know. That, that <laughs> rocked, no, no. rocked me to the core. <laughs> and then we come, of course, to Man on Fire. Now, I remember not liking this when I first saw it, so I revisited it thinking, what will my opinion be this time? I'm looking at it with fresh eyes. I really hated it. 
I think I think it's a genuinely terrible film. I I really I th- I think the subtitles and the cutting and it just turns it into a farce and not a self-referential farce, an accidental farce. I think it's an absurd film. I, I don't think it's self-referential. No, but I do think it's a really good movie. Yeah. Why? Yeah. Why is that? Well, I think it's hard-boiled for starters, and and it's interesting. You you brought up not that that necessarily makes it a great film, but you brought up the use of subtitles. Now, whether it's like a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. I can't recall ever seeing another film. With that sort of use of subtitles, but now a whole heap of doing small, it. Yeah, bigger and smaller, and then they pulsate and jitter and flash and change, and poof, it's that wham, bam, thank you, ma'am style. And that's fine, but I don't think it works. I think it does the film a disservice. You know, I think the thing that really connected me to this film, though, again, I think it's over long. I think it could do with a good half hour cut. Yeah, out of yeah. It. Um, I found that Denzel Washington's character really, really sad. I found him a really tragic figure, as written and as played by Washington. Um, by the end of the film when he's just sort of resigned to his fate and just walking off I mean it's like it moved me I didn't find it him so much tortured as he was a character that everyone kept telling me was tortured you know he needs to learn to love again and I was astonished at how overt all of it was you know mm. oh, it's not a subtle film by any stretch of the no, imagination but you know it's I, I, I really felt that he wasn't so much a tortured guy as a guy who didn't smile much. And as I say, everyone just kept telling me he was tortured. And that really annoyed me. Yeah, and no, I felt it from his performance. I, okay. Yeah, I thought he looked genuinely... He seemed genuinely battered. All right, then we come to Domino. Now, if we were talking about uh, True Romance and Crimson Tide as a one-two great hit for my money... The one-two terrible hit that he has is Man on Fire and Domino. I think Domino is rubbish it's uh, I, th- I think the style of direct directing for me is somebody shouting at me a lot mm. that that's 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 what it felt like to watch this film just somebody yelling at me for two hours i'm a defendant of, of domino yeah i will i mean you know the big surprise um i just think i think it's it's a gonzo fucking leap off the cliff of a film i just mm. think it's i think the script is insane Therefore, the movie isn't should be insane. I think I think the mescaline directorial style. I think it suits this film a lot more than it suits Man on Fire. I do, I do agree that Man on Fire is a, is a little bit overdone in mm-hmm. terms of that sort of you know, flashing editing and the mega cuts and the handheld and all that sort of thing. But I think in Domino, it's absolutely appropriate because it's such a bizarre, Gonzo fucked up world and so television obsessed and so yeah. that um, it's the one Kira Knightley performance I've enjoyed. <laughs> Um, I, I really like her in this film. I think, okay. yeah, I, yeah, me too. I, yeah, I, I think she's got that sort of you know fucking sort of shaved cat punk intensity. It'll punch your face in as quick as look at you. I, I think she really works in the role. Um, I like the. It, it's very much a melding of like. There's a lot of Richard Kelly's bizarro sensibility in there too as writer. Um, uh, I like the wacky segues it makes and. Mm. Um, yeah, I just, and and you know the ending is just nuts with the helicopter shooting at the building and then you know and yeah yeah, yeah I, I, look I will I will say this I think he directs really good opening title sequences I just wish he wouldn't direct <laughs> the whole film like that it, I, I can see why you wouldn't like this film it's 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 ridiculously stylized I think yeah. Paul you summed up my feelings really well on this I, I don't, can't really add much more to that um, other than to requote you before and say overheated. And, and I mean, ridiculously stylized. I can see why I wouldn't like it. It's it's got this sort of green and gold sheen about it. It's like a lime that's been baked in the sun. And there's some spectacular scenes towards the end, particularly with the elevator falling. And it's yeah. like uh, the equivalent of like a, a bunch of fireworks that have been unleashed the giant drop at Dreamworld. It's <laughs> this um, incredibly visual sort of experience. It just sort of it's, it's this big 
theme park like rush and i can see why you wouldn't like it the narrative's all over the place it's quite disconnected but it's very very gonzo it's even got a desert and mescaline in it yeah <laughs> absolutely which again suits the style you know like people described man on fire as you know editing on mescaline and it's like well let's actually have characters on mescaline so now <laughs> and i uh, and it's there are some experiences expertly directed action sequences in there i think there's um i think it's got a black humor that runs through the whole thing that that really helps it as well i i think it's um you know it's not sort of the self-important myth-making of michael bay's films yeah or, yeah or the like i i'm sure there's some people out there that would claim that bad boys 2 has gallows humor i don't think so i think it's just crass and horrible and amoral but but i think domino is on the on the right side of that i mean you've got a character that you know You've got God flipping a coin to make decisions, you know. It's, mm. yeah, it's, yeah. it's not in any... This is not in any way the real world. And, you know, it's like based on a true story, sort of. Because, yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. a mental gonzo fever dream. I, 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 I like really what it's aiming for. It. I just didn't like the way it got It's there. very in your face. And it's, an, it's very much an acquired taste. But it's a taste I have. And I think it's his best film that I've seen of this decade. A mental gonzo fever dream. I love that description. I think that, that is that is brilliant. Yeah, uh, I've, I've got to bow out at this point because I've not seen Deja Vu or Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Nor have I, but Luke has some thoughts on Deja Vu. I do have some thoughts on Deja Vu and I think it's an interesting uh, companion piece to, to Enemy of the State and the way it uses technology, right? So it starts off with this with this massive explosion and all these dudes on a, on a ship on a cruiser, die a horrible, bloody, instantaneous death. And Denzel Washington's character joins up with the investigative unit um, and they, they rewind the scene effectively and, and, and they find this technology that he's told can give a 360-degree element to any 2D shot, right? And so he's sort of ordering them to spin the camera around and go here and go there. And then there's this really bizarre scene where he, he points a laser pen at the screen as he's talking and then a character that he's looking at responds to the laser pen and that's when things get seriously weird in this movie and it becomes this technological time travel film it's like you can watch the past 48 hours ago and then they try and sort of integrate the timelines really bold stuff that does sound great. That sounds like a potentially great idea. It's a great, great idea, and I think this film would have been regarded as an absolute classic if it didn't sell out on itself in the end. Oh, okay. Mm. And what about That's, Taking of... That sounds really intriguing. Yeah. Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. Uh, enjoyable. I, I never saw the original. Oh, the original's a cracker. Yeah, I, I hear it's an so good. cracker. But um, Denzel Washington and John Travolta. Jimmy Gandolfini um, as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. James Gandolfini's in it. Um, I think it's it's quite well staged. It's got the sort of claustrophobic um, vibe to it and the, the, the train sort of stuck down the carriage. And, and that's interesting uh, when we think of his Tony Scott's next film, Unbreakable. Unstoppable. Unstoppable. Oh, sorry, Unstoppable. I'm not talking about the M. Night Shyamalan classic. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you've got a, a train that, that can't move, juxtaposed in this next film with a train that, that can't stop moving. <laughs> <laughs> that makes a cool little double. Nice. It always felt, I don't know, looking from the outside, and from the outside looking in, Taking a Pelham 123, the Tony Scott version, always seemed like a film that if this were released in 1998, it would be massive. <laughs> you know, Tony, you know, John yeah. Travolta and Denzel Washington in a Tony Scott film, mm. you know, in this. And it's like, it just seems like this film's time seemed to be 10 years before it came out. Yeah, <laughs> and because of it, it being a remake too, I guess that, that feeds into that sense of it feeling a little old hat. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but I'd like to have a look, as a fan, I'd like to have a look at it just for the completest sake. Yeah, worth a look. So, in summation, what are your uh, top Tony Scott films? 
Look. Ooh, okay. My my top Tony Scott films. You know, I, I've got to tend to agree with what, what you guys were saying. Um, I think, yeah, Twin Towers was True Romance and Crimson Tide. Um, I'm a big fan of Enemy of the State. And I also like in its own dopey popcorn way, um, Top Gun. And, and as I said, Deja Vu could have been a classic, but it, it, it sort of copped out on itself. So they're probably my picks. Yeah. I'm just, look, I'm going to say I love Crimson Tide. I really genuinely love it. Uh, and I really, really like True Romance. And I, I do have some time for, for some of his other films, but there are some in his, uh, far too many in his filmography where I just think, what the hell are you thinking? <laughs> I and I see uh, the thing with with Tony Scott and I. I mean, okay, my top, I guess, um, I'll say um, my favorite is is probably still True Romance, um, Crimson Tide number two. Like those are just yeah, the the twin towers for me. I think after that, um, I I I would say see uh, yeah, it's a cluster. There's like uh, Last Boy Scout, Domino, and Top Gun. Wow, I really love as well. So so, so my least favorite of his films is in your top five. Yeah. Wow. Okay, that's uh, interesting. <laughs> Yeah, that would probably be my top five. But I think with Tony Scott, is I think his influence on on the way action is directed, for better or worse, has been really underplayed. I think he's the key figure of action filmmaking of the last twenty or thirty years. I think that I, I think that every from Michael Bay to um, to all that sort of come from music video kind of ilk have yeah. all followed in Scott's footsteps. I think that overheated look we see everywhere in action films now. It's only with the Bourne films that's begun to change. Um, and I I think that um, that that sort of style has become the, the signature action style of, say, 1986 through to 2005. But do you think something influenced him in terms of how his style changed? I mean, if you, if you compare see, the way is Top Gun is, is produced to the way something is restless... And you know, jittering and pulsating is domino. You got. I think there's two kind of different approaches to filmmaking. There. I think it's just an evolution. I think he's evolving, or Lee would probably say devolving. <laughs> um, I think there's an evolution of style there. I think he's continuing to push his own boundary. One of my favourite Tony Scott works is actually not a feature film. It's a short he made for BMW called Beat the Devil. Yeah, in which. Um, uh, His style works well in that film. In that it's short. amazing. Um, yeah, Clive Owen's a BMW like getaway driver type guy who um, is helping James Brown uh, sign a new deal with the devil, who's Gary Oldman. And uh, Gary Oldman yeah. challenges Clive Owen to race his driver, who's Danny Trejo. So you've got Clive nice. Owen and James Brown uh, <laughs> racing uh, Gary Oldman and Danny Trejo in you know some hotted up Corvette or something through Vegas, and it's just it's so much fun, and it's like yeah again, and that was with Beat the Devil and Man on Fire and Domino that was becoming a new Tony Scott style, and then I think now with Unstoppable and and some of the others he's beginning to sort of refine that and tone it down a little bit, but without Enemy of the State there wouldn't have been Twenty Four. You know, with all that technological whooshing through, mm. you know, and you know, spy satellite cams and all that sort of thing. Like, that's the key influence on that sort of filmmaking and genre. I, I, yeah, I, I just think, um, I think every, every film with naval combat has been, in the last 25 years, has been influenced by Top Gun. I, I think his influence is a lot more far-reaching than a lot of people give him credit for. And for better or worse... Is something that's happened. Love him or hate him, I will agree with you on his influence. I've, I, and I've, I didn't before I revisited all of his films in preparation for this, and now I see it. Mm-hmm. I definitely see it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, so 
Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Buckmaster. Thank you for stopping by. Yeah, thanks for coming in. And, um, yeah, we'll take the white-hot shaft of light off you and um, stop moving the camera and <laughs> put the guns down. It and is boiling in here. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> With those, all those white lights pointed at me. No, thanks very much for having me. I had a, had a good time. It's been a pleasure. And we'll see you all next month. Next month. Keep watching. Keep watching.